think I'd like to say first my thanks to the three people who have been helping me with these uh, three services, uh, Susan and, and Philip and, and Tom, uh, uh, no, and uh, um, uh, Paul this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but one of the things that struck me about, about these three is the power of just re- hearing the scriptures read. Uh, we, we've had them read in, in rather different ways, but all extremely powerful, and it has struck me just how wonderful an experience that really can be. So this is my last one this morning. You'll be glad to know. Me too. Uh, Jack Bowden hasn't been home for 20 years. A bad boy from childhood, a drifter who'd become addicted to the bottle, and the father of an illegitimate daughter. Jack abandoned the child's mother, leaving her a practical widow and her baby fatherless all those years ago. Jack just walked away from his responsibilities, from his own family, leaving them for years with the torment of not even knowing whether he was alive or dead. And then one day, the Reverend Boughton, Jack's father, receives a letter out of the blue. Jack is on his way home. One day soon, he promises to show up on the doorstep. His old dad sends him a welcoming reply and encloses a check. The date comes and goes. Another letter arrives. Another promised date of return. It passes again and again and again. A cycle begins for the old man. Anticipation, anxiety, disappointment. It goes on for weeks. Jack's sister rehearses the angry outburst that she'll get into if Jack does not deign, if Jack in fact does deign to show up. Then a telephone call, the sound of his voice for the first time in 20 years. It'll be the day after tomorrow, Jack says. Two weeks pass. Another phone call, and then Jack is there. I don't know, how how many of you have read the wonderful new novel by the Pulitzer Prize-winning author Marilyn Robinson? It's called Home. You've got to go and read it now. I've left you hanging. You've got to figure out what happens next, haven't you? It's a masterpiece. Well, I wonder if you were put it this way. It's one of the saddest books I have ever loved. Now, there's one episode in particular in it that concentrates my thought, my few thoughts, actually, for this morning's reflections. It's the Sunday when Jack is home, when he decides to attend the congregational church of his father's closest friend, the Reverend John Ames. Now, in some ways, Jack hopes that this will be a moment of reconciliation. He hopes that his very presence will will bring some healing to himself and to his community, that his past might be put to rest. What do you think the Reverend Ames preaches from that Sunday morning? From what I can make out, it's from Genesis chapter 16. It's the story of Hagar, the Egyptian maidservant of Abram's wife, Sarah. You remember the story. 
Sarah was childless at that stage, and she suggests to her husband Abram that he should conceive a child with her servant, the maidservant. Abram complies, and a father and fathers a son by Hagar, who's called, who's called Ishmael. But no, no sooner is the child born, you remember, than jealousy begins to grip Sarah's heart, and the maidservant is turned out with Abram's consent. The story tells us that God encountered Hagar and told her to name her son Ishmael. Why? I quote from Genesis uh, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 11. Chapter 16, verse 11. The Lord has heard of your misery. That's why he was called Ishmael. Now we know from our studies the past couple of weeks in, in Amos that God is the God of the abandoned. He's the God of the downtrodden. He's the God of the helpless, the rejected, the God of the orphan, the God of the marginalized. And the Reverend John Ames agrees. His sermon is about the disgraceful abandonment of children by their fathers. Jack Barton is listening to the sermon, and he's getting the message. He knew that he was the visual aid that Sunday morning. Of course, uh, the preacher didn't say, the person that I have in mind is a notorious sinner sitting in, in, in row 14. But Jack knew that he was in the firing line all the same. The Reverend John Ames was passionate about justice, about standing up for the exploited, about standing up for the vulnerable, about calling perpetrators to account. Amos sounded like a modern Ames sounded like a modern Amos looking for justice. Now, now let me remind you of Amos's passion. He's deeply troubled by the flagrant disregard for justice in the economic practices, the legal structures, and the religious life of the kingdom of Israel. He paints a portrait of God as deeply concerned for fairness in the courts, for accurate balances, for the people who are the victims of oppression and cruelty and abandonment and tyranny. Listen again to some of the words, chapter 2. Israel is condemned because they deny justice to the oppressed. Chapter 5, the people of Israel turn justice into bitterness and cast righteousness in the ground. Again, chapter 5, they're commanded to hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Again, chapter 5, Amos calls them to let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream. Amos's zeal for justice and God's delight in it are pretty obvious. And indeed, the burden of the previous couple of talks that I've given here is simply to see and help us to see that these things are really more important to the God of Israel than all our religious observances. If we've got that far, we're doing well. If we've come to see that we have to be passionate about justice, we're on the right road. But, but, but. Let's go back to Jack Bowden sitting in that pew in the Reverend Ames. 
And I told you the sermon that the Reverend Ames preached from when Jack was in the congregation. Did it not trouble you a little bit? When the Reverend Ames takes up the case for the prosecution against Jack Bowden in support of his abandoned child and her mother, do we not feel that there's still something wrong here? I mean, there's something not quite right about this. Maybe he should have preached from a different text that Sunday. What about preaching from the parable that Jack's father so much loves? The prodigal son who's welcomed back with open arms and folded into the warmth of the family. Isn't the problem, isn't the problem that the Reverend Ames is too fixated on justice? Isn't it the case that justice is good, but it's not good enough? Because does dwelling on justice leave no room for forgiveness, for love, for charity? Now think, think, think for a minute. Isn't it true that God loves justice, but he doesn't really practice it? Otherwise, none of us would be forgiven. Don't we need to go beyond the Reverend Ames and also go beyond Amos? Don't we need to go beyond justice and find space somewhere for forgiveness and benevolence and generosity and charity? Justice, especially if it's of the eye-for-an-eye, tit-for-tattery kind, doesn't that just leave the world filled with one-eyed people? Somehow, that chain has to be broken. So the problem I'm trying to grapple with this morning is what's the relationship between justice and love? Justice and forgiveness. Justice and compassion. And that has been a long-standing problem in the history of Christian thinking. Way back in the 11th century, for example, uh, example, the Archbishop of Canterbury, St. Anselm, put it this way, put his finger right on the nub of the problem. How do you spare the wicked if you are all just and supremely just? For how does the all just and supremely just God do something which is unjust, is what St. Anselm says. That question has echoed on through the history of the church. When the father welcomed the prodigal son back, was he not being unjust to the older brother? Think about the landowner that Paul read for us this morning from Matthew's Gospel. He paid the laborers that he engaged really late in the day exactly the same amount as the ones that had been offered the job first thing in the morning, even though the others had sweated it out during the heat of the day. Wasn't he being unjust to them? Did his generosity not actually create injustices? Now, in the history of the church, I think, there have been roughly two ways of dealing with this problem. And you can take your choice. You go for one or the other. You either opt for justice or you opt for love. If you take the first option, you take the view that love and forgiveness and generosity are are fine for private relations, but they're no good out in the public arena of public life. They're for the the private sphere, the sphere of personal relations between individuals. But in the public square, we have to do something else. 
we got to work for justice. We should work for a fair society, a fair society in which people get their just desserts. The idea here is that you couldn't operate a system in this world that had forgiveness or compassion enshrined at the heart of it. That wouldn't work for, for, for the public square. It's good for individuals. It maybe even gives us a hint in our private lives of what God's kingdom would be like, but it won't do for society. So let's just stick with justice and work for that. Now, now I think the other option is obviously, obviously the other side of the equation. It too thinks that justice and love are at loggerheads, but it insists that we should always go for love and not worry about justice. Love trumps justice, we could put it that way. Now, the idea here often is that justice is an Old Testament theme. But now we live in the age of Christian love, agape, as it's called. So we shouldn't concern ourselves with trying to change the structures of this world. But we rather should pour ourselves into acts of charity and love and compassion. Let's not bother with all those problems about human rights structural reform of our society, the redistribution of wealth and the like. Anyway, that smacks far too much of a social gospel. It ignores personal salvation. It's liberal do-goodism. Love is the Christian way, we're told. And it supplants the orientation that was towards justice in the Old Testament. So there you have your choice. Justice or love, pick one or the other because you can't have both. Now, now, I've thought about this a good deal over the past few weeks, and, and I've come to think that, that actually neither of these approaches can be right. Now, they do really catch an important dilemma, and it's one that we have to attend to. And so I want to think about this. What is the relationship between justice and forgiveness, justice and grace? And here's my first stab at it, uh, f- far, from, far from complete, but, but a beginning. I think the first thing that we have to grasp is this, that the biblical notion of justice is not just about retribution. It's not just about people getting their just desserts. Now, an eye for an eye is a very good principle. It's a principle of justice. If, if I happen to have poked out somebody else's eye, it's good that I only lose an eye for that rather than having my whole, whole head chopped off. Justice restricts the scope of retaliation, and and that's entirely right and fair. But justice in the Bible is about a huge lot more than that. It's not just about an eye for an eye. It's not just about matching the punishment to the crime. It's not just about equality of opportunity. Here's what it's about. It's about human flourishing. The Old Testament vision of a just society is one in which the weak the powerless, the marginalized, they're brought into the warmth. It's it's a vision that, as Nick Waldersdorf puts it, that shows us that God has a special love for the little ones of this world, for the defenseless ones, the ones at the bottom, the excluded ones, the outcasts, the miscasts, the outsiders. Justice is fundamentally about human thriving, about caring, about belonging. Once we see it in that light, 
it's easier to see that in some fundamental way, justice and love are intimately connected. I think the second thing I'd say is this, that it's wrong to say that only the Old Testament is concerned with justice. It's wrong to think that justice isn't central in the New Testament as well. There are a couple of things here that, that have struck me as I've thought about it. I mean, the first one is that I think we've been schnuckered into sloppy thinking on this whole issue because of the way certain words have been translated in the English versions of the Bible. The fact of the matter is that the word righteousness in English Bibles is much more often translated appropriately by the word justice. It makes a huge difference. Notice what happens when you put the word justice instead of righteousness into the following well-known passages. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after justice, for they shall be filled. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of justice, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You get the difference? It moves the whole thing away just from personal uprightness to working for a more just world. It moves the whole thing from individual piety and from personal uprightness to social concern. Now, now I think the other thing to notice here is how central the idea of justice is to the entire mission of Jesus himself. Luke reports that when he goes to the synagogue and reads from the prophecy of Isaiah, Jesus sees himself as the fulfillment of Isaiah's vision. And so Jesus reads the following words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed Go free. Or think about that passage in Matthew 12 where Matthew says that the acts of healing that Jesus performed fulfilled the prophecy of, of Isaiah. Exactly what prophecy? It's this prophecy. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim justice to the nations. A bruised reed he won't break, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he leads justice to victory. Now, if that's not a mission statement for the whole New Testament era about justice, well, well I don't know what is. However we look at it, justice is as fundamental to the New Testament as it is to the Old Yet we're still left with that problem about how do we figure in forgiveness and benevolence. Those two parables that I referred to, the laborers in the vineyard and the prodigal son, I mean, they really need very careful reading. It looks like they go against justice, but only on the surface. I mean, it looks like the early workers are discriminated against. It looks like the older son in the story of the prodigal gets disadvantaged, but but in fact, no. No, they don't. Note what the landowner actually said in his response to those who complained that they hadn't been treated right because the latecomers got the same pay. Do you remember what he says? Friend, I have not been unfair to you. Friend, 
I do you no injustice. The original workers got what they were promised. They got what they, were agreed, what they agreed to work for. They may have thought they were disadvantaged, but in fact they weren't. Feeling unfairly treated isn't the same as being unfairly treated. As for the prodigal son, the elder son still got everything that was coming to him. It boils down to this. For the landowner and the father of the prodigal, concerns about justice never curbed their generosity. Justice never limited their compassion. Justice never constrained their love. I think I'd put it this way. Benevolence doesn't go against justice. It just goes miles beyond it. It just transcends it. It completely surpasses it. Here's the bottom line. Working for justice is good, but it's not enough. If you're passionate about justice, you've come a long way. If you're struggling to change the structures of our society to make them more just, you have Amos standing by your side. And what's more, you have Jesus standing by your side and you have God's blessing and God's approval. You're doing something close to his heart. And we might pause and ask ourselves if we've got that far. I mean, are we passionate about changing the organizations that we live in and the institutions that we're a part of to make them places where there is human flourishing rather than human demoralization? The places we work in, do we try to make them places where human beings thrive rather than crumble? Are they places where, where we try to nurture our colleagues rather than trying to quench them? Do we work to make our workplaces places where human potential is developed rather than crushed? But that's not the end of it. We've still got to go yet further. If we've got as far as Amos, we're doing well. But we've got to go yet further if we are to grasp the Christian ethic in its full orb. If we're to follow the New Testament, we've got to do more than justice requires. We've got to learn to forgive. We've got to learn to exercise compassion. I tell you, that's not easy. It's easier to be enthusiastic about global justice than for me to forgive my next-door neighbor. It can be easier to fight for human rights than to forgive an insult that you've received. It can be easier to throw yourself into a project to combat world hunger than to forget a slight that you've had, no matter how small. That's the way it is with me. But we're called to forgive. Why? Because we're forgiven. We're called to be extravagant, improvident, open-handed like that, landloader, like that landowner in the, in the parable of the laborers. Why? Because God has been extravagantly generous to us. The landowner did not let potential complaints about injustice stifle his bounty. He didn't let to stifle his big-heartedness. He didn't let popular perceptions of right stultify or muffle his liberality. No doubt about it. Jesus calls his followers to exactly that. Love bounteousness, generosity, forgiveness.
Now, how would these ideas work out in our modern world? I don't know. I don't know what they would look like in today's business world, in institutional plans and audits, in the city of London, in the world of the corporate chiefs and the financial markets. I, I really don't know, but I do have this suspicion that there's a special obligation led on those who are powerful, those of us, those of you who are privileged to occupy positions of authority and influence in these arenas. You've got to set the trend. You've got to have the courage to practice an ethic of upbuilding, compassion, and concern. Care for the needy, the disadvantaged, the little ones, the outcasts, the despised. For Christians in these roles, I, I think a failure to be generous and liberal is a mark of defective Christian discipleship. And I think that includes doing just nothing. When I was thinking about this, I was reminded of that of that arresting phrase of the philosopher Hannah Arendt when she was writing about the famous Eichmann trials in 1961. She talked about, it's a wonderful phrase, the banality of evil. Evils are perpetrated not by monsters or tyrants or fiends, but by you and me. Evil is dull, banal, ordinary, everyday, often trivial, and it strangles human flourishing to death. In this regard, I was heartened recently to learn about an encyclical recently issued by Pope Benedict XVI entitled Caritas in Veritate, Charity in Truth. It's been welcomed by a group of Protestant thinkers who have just signed their own declaration on the subject. It's a call for sustained Christian reflection on the nature of economic life in the midst of the global events that we're now facing. Here's a little from it. We are deeply concerned about the inequality, poverty, food insecurity, unemployment, social exclusion, and materialism that ravage human communities with destructive consequences for our planet. Profit cannot be the, over, the overriding end for human flourishing. Profit cannot be the overriding end for human flourishing. What the documents appeal for is, and I thought this was a wonderful phrase, not an economy of profit, an economy of charity, one in which compassion and care, generosity and grace are introduced because they cannot survive in a balance sheet world. They can't be counted, and therefore, too often, they don't count. But an economy of charity, what a thought that is. It's a good place to start, a good start. But honestly, there's a long way to go. You... Um, You've indulged me on my past two outings when I've regaled you <laughs> with my recent encounter with Terry Eagleton's radical vision of Christianity. Let, let me end this morning with some words from that and indeed this little series. A final challenge to me and I hope to you from those lectures that gives some hint of just how big a task lies before us. 
Maybe we can put it on Steve's agenda as the first item when he, when he comes here. As a Messiah, Eagleton writes, Jesus fails miserably to talk like a five-star general. For the morality of G- that Jesus preaches is reckless, extravagant, improvident, over the top, a scandal to actuaries and a stumbling block of real estate agents. What is it? Forgive your enemies. Give away your cloak as well as your coat. Turn the other cheek. Love those who insult you. Walk the extra mile. Take no thought for the morrow. What a world governed by those principles would look like would be so different from the world that we live in and take for granted that I can only leave it for you to imagine. We should be imagining it. But I do know this. To embark on that journey will run deeply against our culture. It will run deeply against the grain of our society. So much so, I think, that we will need God's Spirit to so grip our imaginations that we'll not only glimpse its possibilities, but, I hope, dedicate ourselves to its realization.